Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm just going to warn you right before that I'm going to tell our guest, Sean Sutherland, that you are hung over to hell. Yeah, I'll tell her. Why not? All right. Well, I just want you to be honest on this podcast. I am. I'm open. I'm honest. I'm hung over. I want you to be honest to everyone listening. Yeah. What else? What else do you want? Um, some cash. If you've bit, got a bit some, of cash, bit of honesty. <laughs> just some cash with some honesty. I got, I got bundles of both. Not <sighs> actually, not that much cash. So, <laughs> so we should probably say that you you sent me a message this morning, uh, flirting with the idea of not turning up because you were hungover. Do you know what it was? It was like sort of testing the waters a little bit. I think I also just needed I needed a friendly voice to speak to. Friendly WhatsApp. Friendly interaction. Yeah. Um, and and you, it was quite an aggressive in. You went, I'm not feeling good. <laughs> I went, what is that? What, what does that mean? No, I think I, I said, how goes? And then I'm not feeling good. <laughs> <laughs> Straight in, I'm not feeling good. That kind of that, there were so many things that went through my head because if I said to you, I'm not feeling good, you would immediately go to yeah. But when worst. you when you say it, it's slightly slightly <laughs> different. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, drinking is not the one. Hundred days sober, you're back on the wagon. Yeah, the wagon is a bit creaky. I tell you what is good though. What is our guest today? Sean is fantastic. I'm actually really excited for this one. She's amazing. She is incredible. She is an entrepreneur. She um, started a few different companies, and she talks about it. But she started her skincare company, and from that, she realised the amount of plastic she was using. She has then gone on to set up another company called A Plastic World, which is about helping the world deal with our plastic crisis where we're at as a planet is worries me daily. And I imagine it worries everyone daily just because we're bombarded by it. So I, I love speaking to people that are involved in presenting solutions and, you know, working for a brighter future. Well, the biggest thing for me, right, is that we read about all these things in the press. We see these things on television about the plastic and pollution and climate change and everything. And I, I understand it, but also I'm not educated in it. Right. And I think Sean Sutherland, who runs a company called A Plastic Planet, um, really explains it in lots of different ways about the problem with plastic 
the problem with pollution, the problem that we have with the world, the problem that we have with climate change, and what we can try and do about it if we can change anything. Mm. And what is great about this episode is that it's it's pretty heavy at times. There's a lot of information that we receive, which is like, oh my God, I can't believe that. Like, I'm going to put it out there. One of the things we should receive today, apparently we're producing a million bottles per minute of plastic. A million plastic bottles per minute. Mm. That's what we talk about in today's episode. That is wild. And wild in the Kardashian sense. Is that a Kardashian? I don't know. Is that a good wild or a bad wild? I don't know. Not in the a wild and not in the Kardashian sense. So a bad wild. I think when they say wild, it's a good it's a good wild. 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 Yeah, it's fucking scary and it annoys me a lot that these people in power just seem to not give a fuck. I'm angry. There you go. I'm angry. I'm hungover. <laughs> Let's get into it. All right, here we go, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to our episode today. Remember, we have our bonus episodes on a Wednesday. Uh, today is a great episode with Sean Sutherland. Get ready for it. Here it is on Private Parts. Um, Sean, I have to apologize because my co-host is hungover. So He's looking good. Right. He's looking Why good. Why are you dropping me in it? Listen. We're, we're just waiting for the little beads of perspiration, God. aka alcohol. I know to start popping out on that forehead. They're yeah. not. They're not going to be coming because I'm using a new sustainable deodorant these days. <laughs> All over your face. <laughs> All over my face. Yeah. <laughs> Is that wait? So how many drinks did you have last night? I told you this before. Well, we the, we the, started the podcast. Everyone else doesn't know. Don't really want to reiterate it. Ten pints. It's double digits. That's <laughs> all you need to know. <laughs> I, had, I had ten pints of lager. Yeah. Do you um do you like a cocktail? Do you like a beer? What do you like? I I my drink of choice, mm. my ultimate drink of choice is a mezcal chili I margarita. Love, I drank a lot of mezcal last night. Did you? I forgot to mention. <laughs> Sorry, this. where's the ten pounds? It's now adding was up. It ten pounds of lager or mezcal? In between, yeah. we had mezcal with Oof. a with a slice of orange. Well, well respect for yeah. being awake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always turn up. Yeah, most of the time. So, John, so you, you have a mezcal spicy mezcal cocktail? Yeah, I do. Yeah, really? that's like lots of fresh lime, not too much of the sugary stuff, mm. on the rocks with salt. I just don't think you can get better than that. That's heaven in a glass for me. What, what, are, you, what are you eating at the same time if you could have a perfect thing to eat? I think probably guac. A bit, really? Like a nice bowl of guac. Come on, then you've got the full experience. Yeah. Are, you in, are you in Mexico? Mexico. Is this oh, where I'm going? Do you know, I've never been to Mexico. What? You have? Oh my God, you, if you like so? mezcal, you need to go. I know. It's I, I thought, good. Yeah, but maybe I'll never come back. So maybe it's a good thing. Uh, Sean, listen, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Um, and I want to first want to say a big thank you because you came and gave a talk at Candy Kittens. Um, and it was one of these amazing experiences where I knew you were coming, but I didn't know what we, I didn't know what you looked like. And I think the other way around and we arrived at Bristol train station <laughs> and we both gave each other this sort of knowing look towards And then it. you paid that man to come up and get a selfie I with you. Know, I know. And I saw is you he still doing, Is he still note. doing that? He's still oh doing that. Oh my God. Yeah, I did. Some, listen, I'm really famous. And so <laughs> some guy, <laughs> some guy came up to me as I was talking to Sean. I was really embarrassed. So I, the Very only way, unlikely looking guy as well, I know, it? I know. He's sort of hovering around the place. Um, but you gave this amazing talk. And it was just incredible. And still to still now, our team still talk about everything that you said. And I still relay all of the quotes that you told me. But now I claim them. As of course, a, they're Jamie quotes. Yeah, they're now. my quotes. They're Jamie you do do that. You absorb people's quotes and pass them off as your own. Well, Everyone get, does. Nothing is original. We oh, all know that. that no, thank you. Nothing is original, yeah, I mean, right? Where did my quotes come from? Think I made them up? Well, I thought you did. Now I'm backtracking. <laughs> 
Do you remember the quote I told you, which was, um, in a handful of soil, there are more living organisms than... How, t- how can I forget? You've, okay. you've told me 10 times. Sean told me that one. That was... <laughs> that was, was yeah. That one is really amazing, isn't it's it? It's incredible. The dirt that, it's we, will, that we call it dirt. The... We say, oh, I've got a bit mucky. And then you realise that the soil is so important and it's so packed with life. And what do we do to it? Kill I know, it. I yeah. know. But we had, and we, we spoke about um, Merlin Sheldrake, who we had on our podcast. Alex is a huge fan. Yeah. He, he was oh, incredible. He's amazing. Me too. Yeah, he's great. Oh, because you, you're, you're a big fan of his. Yep. You said you read his book twice. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, before we get into anything, can you explain your background, who you are, uh, what you do, what you've done? I mean, give us the whole spiel. Well, <laughs> I'll try and do it really quick. You can take as long as you want. We have time. It's, it's long. Okay, I was great. born at a young age. <laughs> Then, How young were you when you were born? Uh, let me think. Uh, less than one. Okay. Got it. Same as me. <laughs> Good. How amazing is that? You guys have so much in common. <laughs> I know. Um, anyway, yeah, fast track. Started my career in advertising. Left at 25. Set up my first business, which was a, a restaurant in Soho. Completely crazy. I had no experience at working in a restaurant. I just loved the idea of building a team and creating an amazing environment for people mm. to come and have great food. Um, we won a Michelin star in our first year. Amazing kiss of death. Because then suddenly you have a crazy chef. Uh, all the Americans are coming over, you know, long short. It was, a, it was a tumultuous business. And sometimes I would lock that door. It was in Lexington Street. I would lock that door at 2 a.m. and think, I really hope it burns down. Wow. And I never need to see it again. This is such a hard life. Yeah. And other times I just thought I had the best job in the world. So I think ever since, I've never done anything quite as mercurial as that. Can I just quickly ask you, just, it's so funny what people say that having too much success too early is a really bad thing. Um, and and you, so getting a Michelin star in your first year, and, and what we strive for, right, I say this all the time, is everyone wants like a viral hit or disc mm. so quickly, but actually that's almost, as you said, kiss of death. Because where do you go from there? You can't. Mm. You, no. you, and, way- and, you know, the chef obviously wins the star largely. And then you have a chef who, what, he's got to either keep the star, what if he loses the star, and maybe he can get a second star. So then you're on that treadmill rather than the original idea, which was to create this gorgeous environment that people felt really good. Uh, but whatever, it was an incredible experience. I then married my restaurant manager. And I don't, anybody, <gasps> Get who, out of town. anybody who works with their partner, <laughs> big respect, because I think that's really hard. Um, and I went back to my marketing roots. I set up a, a brand creation packaging agency, which considering what I do now is kind of ironic. Hmm. Um, and then we had myself, my co-founder, we had our baby making years and we um, created a range of products that were specifically to help us through that whole nine month stretch. And this was a, a brand called Mamma Mio. And mm. you know, we, we used it for us. It was just this little potions that we created with no commercial intent. And, and then the time came when I thought, what are we doing? Mm. making all these brands for other people. You never think your clients are brave enough. Um, And here in this incredible, saturated market of beauty, I mean, how many eye creams, face washes, whatever Mm. are there? It's such a plethora of choice. I don't know how anybody chooses. But there is a gap that happens, you know, when you are pregnant. There is a niche in this market you could drive a bus through. Everybody's got a mother. So Mm. people who say, well, that's not a very big market. Well, everyone's got a mum. And the wonderful thing about the pregnancy market is it changes every nine months. So you have a new audience. And so we created the first premium skincare range for pregnancy to help you cope with that whole nine month stretch and hopefully get back to something you feel good about afterwards. And we launched that in the US. That was our primary market. And I ran that for 10 years. Um, so how did you you know what to do there? How did you, because it's always the big question that someone gets asked, right? When I get it, I get asked all the time. I sort of, 
fumble my way through it the whole time. You know, how do you know how to start a skincare range when you have no experience with that industry? And we said it before, naivety, mm. isn't it? Yeah, I've, I feel that naivety is my superpower. Because I don't know the reasons why not. And Mm. so many people, you know, if I'd grown up through the ranks of Estee Lauder, say, I would know this is how you launch a brand and I would do it that way. Obviously, we launched Mamma Mia at a time where we were focused on internet, you know, on online shopping, when everybody was saying, where's your flag waiver stores? You know, where's Mm. your retail distribution? And we did have that, but largely it was D2C. And that was very new then. And we could do that because we didn't understand the rules. We didn't you know, we just thought like our customers, because we were our customers. And so we built a brand that was incredibly emotional mm. because, you know, it's not like, I don't know, acne or anti-aging creams. It's for pregnant women, you know, who are growing a flipping miracle. They're growing mm. a human being in their tummy. Mm. Massive insecurity. We're used to, as women, being in control of our bodies and to a certain extent. You fall pregnant and, and nature takes over. You've got a tummy the size of Montana. You have no control over that. You don't know what you're going to look on, on the other end. To sort of find a brand that's run, created and run by women who really understand how you're feeling, your lack of body confidence and what you need at all those different stages, I think that was a big part of our success. So having that direct communication with our customers mm. was really important and the internet gave us that. That's amazing because you, you, it's true. What, what I think, uh, and I'm seeing this a lot of my friends, is that we're, we're educated in so much in life, right? Like loads of different things. No one really educates women in particular about pregnancy and what happens and the changes in the hormones and all these different things. And, the, and everyone says oh, it's, it's, it's tough having kids, but wow, I can see it with my friends. There's a, it's so much stress on it. And then what you guys created is this cream, as you said, that helped with the the stomach right so mm-hmm. you would see have stretch marks all those kind of things and that's what blew your company up wasn't it that was yeah. the real success story of it yeah exactly and I think I think also being first to market mm. and now I mean even our distribution like if if you if you go into John Lewis Beauty Hall a million brands on the ground floor if you go up to the nursery department zero skincare. And yet everyone who steps into the nursery department is something to do with the world of babies. So we sold in the nursery department because we knew that that was our best kind of focused, targeted marketing. So we had a very different kind of distribution model as well. And then as as our company grew, I ran that for 10, 11 years. Uh, We launched a second brand, which was called Mio, and that was all about fit skin. Another completely selfish brand, the stuff that we wanted to buy Mm. because our baby making years were behind us. We wanted stuff that helped us you know, have fit skin for life. That was our mantra, fit skin for life. Mm. Because every, you know, the, that whole um, market of well-being and fitness and everything, you know, that was all massively on the rise. And again, there wasn't a skincare brand that spoke that language to you. Mm. So you know, I think our best-selling product for um, Mio was liquid yoga, which was this incredible bath soak. Um, what is that? I need, well, I need some it's of that. Exactly, it is so That's what you, what you need, need right, right now. My, my yeah. husband was <laughs> completely that. addicted to, to liquid yoga because it just had this incredible... <laughs> is that the name of it? Liquid? It's called liquid yoga. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's just a bath so really rich in Epsom salt. So it, it helps you with your aches and pains. But you'd use it every day anyway because it smells so amazing. Um, so it was products like that that we, that we developed. But you can imagine that through all of this time, you know, we're in the most competitive space in the world in the beauty market. And my focus is on, have we got enough money? How are we are we going to open a new market, extend, extending distribution, bringing new products into the market, all of those things. That constant conveyor belt of new that, that retailers push you to, the press mm. push you to. 
So you can imagine my focus was not really on. And then what happens to these hundreds of thousands, these millions of plastic bottles that I feel personally responsible for pumping out into the environment mm. wasn't on my list. And then it was as we were exiting the, uh, the skincare brand, we sold it to the Huck Group that you might have heard of now mm. with their MyProtein and look fantastic and lots of other companies. And through that whole process, I was asked to uh, advise the Hong Kong board of a, a, a um, foundation of documentary filmmakers. And they were making the first feature documentary about plastic in the ocean. It was called A Plastic Ocean. Mm. And that for me was my massive rapid epiphany, as you can imagine. I had no idea. And I learned very, very quickly what we do every single day to the oceans what, and what we still do. And this was um, six years ago now, seven years ago. Uh, and nobody was interested in seeing a film about plastic in the ocean. And as part of helping advise on the launch of this film, we hosted some screenings. And one of them was um, in Notting Hill at the Electric Cinema. Uh, and this was pre-Blue Planet too, so nobody knew, nobody cared. Mm. And to get people to come and see a film you know, with, with the title of Plastic Ocean, we had to bribe people to come. Mm. You know, we had to offer them dinner. Luckily, we had David Attenborough coming, so that, you know, he he's was a, a good, bit of a draw. He's a good pill, yeah. He's he a good How did you be. get him involved there? But, um, because he was very passionate about this, and also really? one of the producers had worked with him at BBC Bristol. So we and he had it. seen it. He had seen this. Hadn't seen it. No, but as in a, he had seen the way that plastic was destroying. He he the had, world. but at that time, David Attenborough um, was very quiet about the impact we're having on the world, mm. and that's why Blue Planet Two was so extraordinary because it was the first time he really spoke up about the impact that man is having yeah. on the planet and everything that lives on it. So we had this. Why this was screening. he doing that? Why was he being um, quiet? About I think it? I don't know. I think it's a BBC thing. Um, Dare I say it? Yeah, true. Um, he was but, worried but about coming out. Don't with rock the, the boat. Yeah, you don't want to be negative. No, right? you're He's... reporting the wonders of nature, yeah. the beauty of the world. Don't be a downer. Yeah. You know, and a film like A Plastic Ocean is a Debbie Downer of a film. Um, but luckily, people came. And, uh, and but that moment when we said to the guys at the Plastic Oceans Foundation, what's the take home for people? They're going to see this film. They're going to feel scared, angry, guilty. They're going to realise what we have done. That film took eight years to make. It was privately funded. No way. It, and it focused, it, it, through that eight years, quite amazingly, it started to be, what's this stuff in the sea? What's this stuff in the sand? To being, what's this stuff in fish? What's this stuff in our own bodies? I know, mm. that's the scariest thing. Yeah. It's, um, it's in our bloodstream now, yeah, right? It, it is everywhere. But that was the moment where, and everybody was saying, oh, just give this leaflet out, the three R's. And I looked at this leaflet and I said to Fred, my co-founder, this is just bullshit. This means nothing. We've been saying this for decades. Recycle. When we know that plastic is a downcyclable material, mm. you're never going to recycle it. Why doesn't the infrastructure exist? Because it, it doesn't behove us financially to recycle so, plastic. So recycling was started by Coca-Cola. It was. The, yeah. the push for in the yeah, 80s. Because they realised really? what was happening. Was yeah, it really? Because well, there, was, there was backlash against plastic in the 80s and they thought, well, okay, we need to turn flip this to make it look like we're, we're being responsible. But apparently you can't really recycle that well. It's really hard to do. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There are a lot of chemicals within plastic, and every time you recycle it, you release more and more of those chemicals, which is why historically you couldn't have food wrapped in recycled plastic. Right. Now, of course, everybody is trying to recycle everything because mm. we've got the plastic tax and all of those things. But it's the it's the wrong use of the material in the first place. So, so can I just quickly ask? So, when when two things here. And I, and I know you said it to me before, but two things. So when something has recycling on the packaging, uh-huh. um, you have numbers yeah. within it. What, what are the numbers that actually do recycle? And what are, the, what are the numbers which are just nonsense? And I've explained that so badly, but you... No, I know exactly. You have a little a triangle, triangle on the back. Don't you? you have a yes. triangle on the back, right? Yeah. Only one and two. Only one and two have any value. Isn't that mad? That they, that's Completely a lie then. We're being lied to. Yeah, we've been totally lied to. And you know the little symbol that, you know, it's called the Mobius loop with the little arrows going yeah. around? What do you think that means? Recyclable. No. It, it means that the company that made the packaging pays a tax <laughs> to, to hopefully, and, and probably not, go towards a recycling system. Mm. It doesn't mean anything to do with the packaging being recycling. So all of that nonsense on the back of pack, and I've talked to many journalists about that, you know, there have been a lot of exposés, you know, on the complete nonsense. This little... I don't know, placebo pill that we have swallowed for decades thinking it's decades. okay it, it seems, because we it can recycle to, it to be and we this, can't. This trend for big corporates to push the blame onto the consumer and go, oh, look, you do this, you do this. And then they don't do anything themselves. Yeah. And we fall for it. Yep. They've done it with, uh, with um, the fossil fuel companies saying that, you know, we need to, we need to cut down. But, you know, they're still... Yeah. Ravaging yeah. the planet. It, right? it makes no sense. And, and Jamie and I were talking at the Candy Kittens talk about how, you know, when you look at things like the Valdez oil spill, mm. do you remember that black yeah, slick, crazy. the Exxon Mobil oil spill and the birds, the devastation to the environment, the mess. And we all knew who to blame. We knew who had to go and clean it up. We knew who had to pay the fine. Mm. We knew it was Exxon Mobil and it was their responsibility. And yet you look at the photographs now that you see of the vast amounts of plastic pollution everywhere. And you look at the 120 billion plastic bottles pumped out by Coca-Cola alone mm. every single year. 120 billion? Yep. Zero responsibility for the devastation they cause the environment. In fact, not only zero, they blame you. Yeah, they blame me. It. I know, it's yeah, they, they offset that responsibility saying, if only you'd put it in the right bin, if only you'd recycle more. They actually came out and said, we don't have a packaging problem. 
we have a we have a recycling problem, mm. and that's and that for me is why. I mean, I, I don't like I don't agree with blame and guilt and naming and shaming, but that one company, I'm sorry. But so wh- when you when you see the numbers on the back of recycling, what are the numbers that are the ones that do try to cycle, recycle? One and two. Well, oh, it's one and two. I yeah. think you said one only and two. Only one and two. So, so things only like the PET bottle. Got it now. You know, the, those things you know, and HDP, those, those are the ones that any recycling system will say, that's great, I'll have it. But then you have to remember, but then what if, happens if it's the... coloured plastic, oh my even God. if it's one and two, nobody wants it. Uh, if it's printed on, nobody wants it. So 9% of all our plastic in the UK is recycled in the UK. In the US, it's 6%. So what happens to it? So I have, I have my plastic bottle that gets, I, I recycle it, I put it away. Um, it gets taken away. Where does it go from there? So it goes to what is called a MRF, which is a, mechanically, a mechanical recycling facility, yeah. just like the name MRF. <laughs> uh, and, and then from the MRF, unfortunately, if it's plastic waste, 60 plus percent of it gets put into a container truck and it gets sent abroad. And we send it to Turkey and we send it to Poland and Myanmar and Malaysia. And we send our waste from our relatively rich country of the UK. For me, it's the ultimate in waste imperialism. Mm. We export it to developing countries, expecting them to deal with it. And already there's been many exposés of our waste, our Tesco recycling bags being found in the jungle in Malaysia, being burned on the roadsides of Turkish villages it is shocking. Mm. So one of the things that we do at A Plastic Planet is we are pushing the UK government to have an outright ban on the export of plastic waste. That Every country mad. has to deal with their own dirt. Yeah. That is terrible. It's, it's just that mentality of like, we'll just go and shove this in. Yeah. It's just awful. Like. But it's almost like, I think the bin is, is that for us. You know, mm. I've always thought, I wonder why the bin bag is black. I think it's our guilty secret. We don't want to see it. We put it in there. We pop it outside the door. On like almost a daily basis now. It's, yeah. it's extraordinary. There's only myself and my husband at home now. I can't believe how much rubbish I was, we I have. I was thinking this yesterday. I was like, yeah. if they didn't take my bins away, it yeah. would be mental. Like yeah. The amount of waste I produce just oh as, God, like, on know. my own, it's crazy. And when there but, is anarchy, the first thing that happens is the waste piles up yeah, in the street. Yeah, but I, I feel like this happens a lot. Like we're disconnected from everything. Yeah. It's like with food as well and, and like the meat industry and all this, because we don't see this process that's happening. So, like, it's the same with waste. We don't actually see what's going on behind closed doors. If we actually got, you know, shown what was happening, then people would... I completely agree. I think if you eat meat, you have to know where your meat comes from. Mm. And, and then totally fine. If you're good with that, then that's great. But you should go to, I don't know, an intense chicken farm. Um, you should go to an abattoir. You should see what actually happens. And then if you're happy to eat meat, then carry on and eat meat. But it's when you don't, when we disconnect ourselves from mm. it, exactly as you say, because we don't really want to know and we just want the sanitized version. We don't want to be responsible, Because that's all we can cope right? with. Yeah. Then, then I feel that's wrong. Mm. But, but Sean, I remember we spoke about this, which is so true, is that, and you spoke about image, right? Um, you, we were talking about the image that was back in, I don't know, the, the, the 60s or the 50s. And you said it's interesting that there was always this vision of flying cars. Yeah. And, and you can ex- explain this a bit more, but now we don't have really a vision of the future. Yeah. And you said this amazing quote, which I'm going to murder, maybe you said, which is, if we can't catch our breath today, we can't get a breath in the future. <laughs> yeah. If we are mentally out of breath dealing with the present, we don't have the capacity to imagine a better future. And that is where we are right now, I think, because... You're right. You know, I always talk about that. Uh, when I was seven, I had this amazing book. I so wish I had this book today. And it was called The Book of Tomorrow. 
And it, it did have these incredible visions to me of, of this bright, shiny, unimaginable, exciting future mm. of people in little jets and bubbles and flat screen TVs. We didn't even have a TV. So, you know, all of this was just beyond belief to me. And then I worry that now this generation growing up, you know, even, even my sons, they don't have that bright, shiny, amazing future to look forward to. They have a climate Armageddon. Yeah. They have the guilt of the consumerism that we all you know, are part, you know, that we're all complicit in. And we need to create that vision because at the moment, everything is such doom and gloom. And I am an internal optimist. You, you know, as an entrepreneur, you have to be a yeah. born optimist. And we have to create a vision of something that is, again, bright and extraordinary and worth accelerating towards. Yeah. Because otherwise, all we do is just tread water. It'll incremental shifts on, a, on the dial of the Titanic because we haven't got this vision that we can then build a roadmap to. Mm. So we need the visionaries. We need the mavericks. We need the crazies. Yeah, but how do we do that? That, I don't, it, like, that almost I, goes down to sort of like a manifestation sort of level where if, if you constantly think of the negative, then that's going to be the reality. So you've got to put this focus on this bright new future and just think about that, think about that, think about yeah. that. And, and that's where radical naivety, I think, is a superpower. Yeah. Because, you know, we work with big companies like Unilever and Kraft Heinz and God bless them. You know, they all work in silos, but also they are so hampered by, oh, we can't do that because of the supply chain. Mm. And, you know, we've, it, it can't be more expensive short term, even if it's cheaper long term because of you know, the stakeholders. There's always reasons why not. And if you come at things fresh, and which this is why we were talking earlier about the thing that I get most excited about is this generation of new entrepreneurs that are coming up now mm. that think in a totally different way, that don't have the baggage of the supply chain, the brand legacy and the reasons why not. They just know that's where we've got to go. And here I'm going to create a business and build a business that's going to get us there now. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm advisor to this extraordinary group um, and it's called Sigma Squared and it's young entrepreneurs. You have to be under 25 and be a founder to be in this group. Really? So you if you're 26, Jesus. I mean, it's I, terrifying. But you're on the board of it? Uh, I'm on the advisory board. That's very cool. And so that I, and so I met cool. all these youngsters and it was just before COP26. Yeah. And I met all these youngsters and they were doing unbelievable things. They were you know, creating uh, satellite companies that are going to measure all the, the carbon and the greenhouse gases, uh, really um, new education systems, extraordinary things. And what, it, what struck me afterwards was, and not one of them talked about money. Oh, All of them wow. talked about, mm. this is what I'm going to achieve and wow. this, is the, this is how it's going to benefit the world. Not in a cheesy, do-goody way, in a really excited, completely different framing of what success is. Way. Yeah. And, and the money was just the fuel to get them there. Mm. And then I went to COP26 and my heart sank. And I just thought, just please give these youngsters the money because mm. they know what to do. And all these, you know, grey-haired men in suits... Yeah. postulating and more, more words, more words, more words. And, and yet I just come from this really exciting convening where I thought they've got all the answers. Do you have a, do you have a voice um, big enough, Sean, that you can speak to these people and say, look, guys, you've got to take note of what the younger generation are doing. Because it's interesting, maybe I'm totally wrong here, but I have a feeling, I feel like, okay, if you, if you, uh, you know, so if you look at the sort of three generations, so if I look at my grandparents, for example, my grandparents were kind of... Um, they were, they were sort of just workers, right? You, they were just workers. They, they went to job and they worked. And actually, it was kind of, there were sort of family businesses and things like that. And then 
my parents' generation were the ones who started to realize that actually, oh, we can all start to make money here. Mm. And my generation is about being money. We're, we're obsessed with becoming rich. Mm-hmm. We're obsessed with driving this car, having this house, um, being entrepreneurs. And actually the younger generation are now obsessed with saving the world. Yeah. And that's what is so amazing. That we, and, and what we're trying to do here, as you're saying, is you're trying to change habit, which is a really hard thing to change, right? You yeah. To change everyone's habits to go, oh no, stop caring about things stop caring about profit and actually start caring about people and planet. Yeah. yeah. And it's really hard, but it is an imperative. And I think the, the young generation, you know, I, I'm not going to probably have to live with the consequences of what my generation have done, which is a really terrible, guilty thing for me to feel. Do you feel guilty about it? I do. And that's, that's why I do what I do now at A Plastic Planet is mm. I can't be that generation that made this mess and not perhaps try to use some of my entrepreneurial experience, you know, my marketing uh, experience to try and do something to change the status quo and get people to think differently. And not in a negative way, not in a, a blame way, but in a way where, we th- where there is change, there is incredible opportunity. And that's what entrepreneurs recognize, mm. is there is a lot of gravy down there. And, it, and the people that are smart are going to get it. And the people that don't step over the line of, of the new kind of business model, they're going to be the dinosaurs. Yeah. And there are many dinosaurs in waiting right now. Everyone's got a Kodak story. Um, Sean, we're going to stop there for part one, but I want to come back in part two where um, I want you to give the statistics around if the whole world, every single person said, right, we're going to go and recycle and do our bit to save the world, you know, and, and save the world from plastic, what percentage would actually clear up? I've explained that so badly. You said to me once where... If the whole world did their bit to clear up plastic, there's only a small percentage of plastic that should be cleared up. Yes. Save that for part two. Save that. Save that for <laughs> Hold part two. Hold that thought. Hold that for part two. I'm holding. Okay, hold it. We'll see everybody in part two. Bye-bye. <laughs>